Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. If you tuned in last week, you heard me talking about the $30 billion a year sex tech industry and how sex robots now employ artificial intelligence to enable them to engage in sexual contact with humans in a way that feels as natural as possible. Today, I'm going to be talking about innovations in sexual medicine and biomedical engineering. I'll be introducing you to the field of human augmentation. We'll be discussing genital transplants. Yes, we can do that now, folks. I'm also going to introduce you to a new form of male contraception, which is not available, but coming down the pike um, quickly. I'll be interviewing my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Joshua Gonzalez, who is a sexual medicine doctor here in Los Angeles, he'll be describing two innovative aspects of sexual medicine. He'll be talking about a procedure called PRP, which stands for platelet-rich plasma, and how he and other sexual medicine docs are using PRP to treat erectile dysfunction. He'll also be talking about the use of lasers to treat pelvic pain and postmenopausal symptoms in women. I will have a sex IQ quiz for you today, and I'll be answering a question from one of my listeners. So let's get sex savvy. Breakthroughs in the medical field are happening every day, every week in America and all around the world. Some of these innovations are game changers for people who suffer from sexual limitations or dysfunctions caused by congenital, biological issues, or due to illness or injury. Imagine for a moment living in a world where we could complete penis transplants. Just think about that. That sounds kind of science fiction-y. But um, actually, we live in that world already. In 2016, Johns Hopkins became the world's first ever hospital to conduct a successful penis and scrotum transplant. The team consisted of nine plastic surgeons, two urologic surgeons, and the surgery lasted 14 hours. An entire penis and scrotum without the testicles, though. So the entire penis and scrotum from a deceased donor was transplanted into a veteran who had wounded um, his genitals in Afghanistan. This surgery was successful, and he went on to father a child. Also in 2016, at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, um, a woman received a uterine transplant, and that was the first time in the country that that had ever been done. 
Unfortunately, this particular surgery was unsuccessful. Her body rejected the transplanted uterus and it had to be removed. But similar transplant surgeries that had been conducted in Sweden were quite efficacious. In fact, in Sweden, there were nine uterine transplants in nine different women, five pregnancies and four live births. So for women who have uterine factor infertility, also known as UFI, it used to be that kids' biologic children were absolutely out of the question. But now with these innovations, women who are lacking a uterus, either because they were born without one, they lost theirs, or they have one, but it's non-functioning, are able to explore the possibility of giving birth. Thousands of women of childbearing age experience this uterine factor infertility. In fact, one in 4,000 women uh, throughout the world experience this condition. Uh, oftentimes, it's, it's a genital condition in which the Mullerian duct uh, does not develop properly and it doesn't allow for a uterus to form the Mullerian duct differentiates to form the fallopian tubes, cervix, uterus, etc. So uterine transplants are one of the transplants that are called ephemeral, which means they're not intended to last for the duration of the recipient's full life, but rather are used only as long as necessary, in this case, to have one or two children. After the children are born, assuming it's successful, then the transplanted uterus would be removed as opposed to a transplanted kidney, for example, which would stay inside someone's body until their death. In order for these transplants to happen, we must rely on organ donors. And of course, that limits the number of surgeries that are performed. However, with the advent of 3D bioprinting and tissue engineering, this will certainly change um, over the next five to 10 years. Doctors at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center created and implanted lab-grown vaginas into women with vaginal aplasia. Vaginal aplasia is the condition I described where the malarian ducts do not develop and women are born without a uterus. Um, so they were able to create in a lab and transplant lab-grown vaginas into women with this condition. They also bioengineered and implanted penile erectile tissue onto rabbits. So lots of stuff is happening in this area, and um, it's very, very exciting and very, very encouraging. When we think about birth control, we automatically assume that it is the domain of the woman. We think about the oral contraceptive pill, we think about an IUD, um, and we expect a woman to take care of the contraception. Men have two options, basically, a condom, which... Um, it's certainly uh, better than nothing, but research shows that there's an 18% yearly pregnancy rate for condoms, so not 100% efficacious, but helpful in terms of preventing sexually transmitted infections. 
Um, and the other option for men is basically vasectomy. Those are the two options um, up until now. There's a new um, type of male contraception that is not FDA approved or available now, but is uh, being studied and has shown to be highly efficacious. It's a product called Vasogel, and it's a gel that men can inject directly into the vas deferens, and it works by blocking sperm. The good news is that this gel is hormone-free and, best of all, reversible. Researchers performed a preclinical trial on rabbits, I believe in India, and uh, the efficacy was very high. And the and the rabbits had no sperm, no detectable sperm in their semen within as soon as 29 days post-injection. And the contraceptive effect remained robust through the entire year-long study. So many people are excited and waiting for this to become FDA-approved in the U.S., it was predicted that it would be available in 2018, but given that it's 2019 and it's not on the market, there have been some delays because they've had trouble recruiting volunteers to engage in actual human clinical trials. Once injected, the material forms a hydrogel and acts as a type of implant, if you will. It remains in a gel-like, soft, squishy state that can flex to the walls of the vas deferens. And what's interesting is water-soluble molecules can pass through the material, but it actually blocks and traps larger structures, including sperm, from getting through. Some of the advantages of this product, should it ever be approved, are that it has been shown to be highly efficacious. Only one unplanned pregnancy among 250 volunteers. Um, it's convenient in that there's no interruption before the sex act, like when using a condom. A lot of men and women describe it breaks the mood. In terms of cost, the shot itself costs less than the syringe used to administer it, and its long-term efficacy would make it theoretically only a four or five time cost in the entire lifetime of the man who chooses to use it if he continues. It's an outpatient procedure, safer than obviously being admitted to a hospital and having surgery. And the subjects uh, so far who've been studied are able to resume their normal sex lives and daily activities within less than one week. In terms of the duration of it working, according to Dr. Guha from India, who's the um, creator of this product, a single 60 milligram injection can be effective for at least 10 years. And what's really, really interesting about this product is that it can be removed and men are able to produce sperm again in their semen and able to impregnate a woman if that's their goal. So as I said, this is not available, but it's coming. Um, and I think it's great to take the burden of contraception off of women.
So, how sex savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. Okay, it's time for Sex IQ quiz question number one. Now, this is not science or research-based. This is based on 25 years of consistent clinical observation in my sex therapy office. Women are most likely to worry about blank during sexual encounter. A, their weight or appearance. B, how they smell. C, whether they're going to experience orgasm. And D, pregnancy, whether or not they're going to get pregnant. So the choices are weight or appearance, smell, orgasm, or pregnancy. The answer is B, smell. Women seem to be preoccupied with and distracted with how fresh they smell. Not only are women worried about vaginal odors, but they tend to be concerned about general body odor and also worried that there may be some smell coming from their backside. So um, women really, really want to smell good. And this is a consistent area of concern based on my conversations with women Question number two, which country boasts the highest amount of sex per annum? Is it A, Greece, B, the United States, C, France, or D, Sweden? The answer is Greece. Greeks engage in sex approximately 138 times per year, more than any other country surveyed. Question number three, in which of the following countries do women have the highest percent of owning a vibrator? Is it Australia, Iran, Japan, or Spain? Which country do women have the highest number of vibrators? Australia, Iran, Japan, or Spain? The answer is Japan. 75% of women in Japan admit to owning a vibrator versus 47% average in other countries. So there you have it. Vibrators in Japan, lots of sex in Greece, and lots of worry about how women smell in the United States of America. I'm very happy to introduce my guest today, Dr. Joshua Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez has a private practice here in Los Angeles. He has a background in urology and a special interest in what's called sexual medicine. He actually completed a fellowship in sexual medicine with Erwin Goldstein, who, if you've been with me since the very beginning, will remember he was in episode one as a featured guest and is my resident medical expert. Josh, thank you. Welcome to Sex Savvy. Thanks for having me. Now, you and I actually have a bit of a history. We do. (laughs) I think, uh, was it, I don't know, close to five years, four years, something like that? I reached out to you because Dr. Goldstein let me know that you were in town. He said, you have to meet Joshua Gonzalez because he's in San Diego. You're here in LA. I reached out and we sort of had a 
really good vibe right away. Yeah. And we have done a couple of community-based programs together. You and I co-hosted Sexy Talk. Yes, it was very fun co-hosting that. It was so much fun. We just basically invited people in, offered them a range of, what was it, martinis? I forget. There was a variety of drinks available, but yes. Tequila. And we had food and we had dessert and we just opened the floor up and they were able to ask everything they wanted to know and were too embarrassed to ask about sex. And we had such a good time. We really need to do another one of those. I know. That was so fun. I just think it was great for patients and even providers that were there that work in the sexual health space to get that sort of dual perspective of like the medical side the mental side of all of this. Yeah. Because it's so complicated sometimes, you know, and it's often an interplay between both, you know, the mind and the body. So it really is. And I'm always talking about how I can't do it alone Mm -hmm. and how you can't do it alone, that we have to work as a team. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we share a lot of patients. I refer to you and you refer to me. Yeah. And together we provide some continuity of care for our patients. Yeah, it's so important. So let's talk about what is sexual medicine? Why would someone come and see you and what can you offer them? Sure. So sexual medicine is sort of a broad area of medicine that specifically involves managing, for the lack of a better phrase, I don't love this phrase, but sexual dysfunctions in men and women. And that can involve everything from erectile dysfunction to ejaculatory and orgasmic dysfunction to hormonal issues, menopausal management, painful sex, lack of libido. So it's a wide ranging cluster of symptoms that patients will come to see me for. I think where sexual medicine is unique is that it allows us to treat both men and women. And that's not something that is typical in medicine. We're often, we like to categorize things. And so, you know, the world of women's health is left to gynecologists and the world of men's health is left to urologists or other sort of primary care physicians. But the truth is, is, you know, sex doesn't occur in a vacuum. And oftentimes men and women can have similar problems despite being very different biologically. And if you're talking about a heterosexual couple and you're you know, have a man and a woman in a relationship, you can take care of one of them. But if you can't address other potential sexual issues that are present in their partner, then you're sort of not totally helping them because they're not having sex alone. They have a partner that they have sex with. Exactly. Yeah. I think sexual medicine is a really special area of how we care for people and make them as healthy as they can. Because I think sexual health is a really important component of our overall health that is grossly undertreated. You are preaching to the choir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't have to convince you. There's a couple of resources. I mean, the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, they have a website where you can actually search for a provider. Now, that's just typically U.S.-based because that's a national society. It's smsna.org. That stands for Sexual Medicine Society of North America. And they have a provider finder, basically. Great. So you can type in where you're located and it'll find somebody that is nearby. The International Society of Sexual Medicine also has a website. And I believe they have a find a provider function. Yeah, there's a find a provider website. And that website is issm.info. Great. So those are pretty easy to use resources for patients, both nationally and internationally to at least narrow down providers close to them that 
self-identify as having an interest in sexual medicine. Wonderful. Thank you. One of the reasons I do this podcast is to keep people informed about innovations in sexual medicine and sexual health and new research that's being done. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us some of the most exciting things that you're doing now in your office? Sure. So I would say the latest exciting sort of development or interest within sexual medicine has to do with regenerative therapies. So there are a few different modalities that we can use to try to affect change depending on what the sexual dysfunction we're treating is. So in my office, we do PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma injections. And basically what that entails is a patient comes in, has their blood drawn like they would if they were just getting regular lab tests drawn. It's not a large volume blood draw, but a small tube of blood is then spun and it separates into serum and plasma. And within the plasma are platelets, which carry growth factors, which are the factors that tell the body to essentially build new collagen, build new blood vessels, and essentially regenerate tissue. So we take that plasma and draw it off of the tube that has separated and then inject that plasma with the platelets and growth factors into an area where we're trying to affect change. Such as? We are using it in our office to treat erectile dysfunction, to treat a condition called Peyronie's disease, which is a typically an acquired curvature of the penis, but there is a congenital form of it, to affect orgasm in women. And it's also used to, or it can be used to sort of regenerate areas that are chronically inflamed or irritated and may be painful, mm. which is something that we see in certain women who report pain with sex. So would you use that maybe for like a vulvodynia? You could, depending on the source of their vulvodynia. So it's important to kind of appropriately diagnose why they're having pain. Mm -hmm. Like I see women who have vestibulodynia, which is a more specific descriptor of pain, mm -hmm. who have an area within the vestibule that, you know, we try to treat hormonally if that seems to be the underlying cause. But sometimes they have these sort of recurrent tears where it's just that the tissue is never allowed to sort of fully heal. And they kind of always have this like paper cut type thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So using a regenerative therapy could potentially help that area heal and become healthier. Could you use that treatment for something like lichen sclerosis? It's been looked at. I have not used that particularly. I think there are people using PRP and PRP-like materials, like other regenerative modalities to try to affect that. When you're talking about lichen specifically, Lichen, while we think of it sort of as something that causes pain and can cause dramatic changes in the tissue of the genital tract, it also is a cancer precursor. Mm. So you have to be careful when you are treating lichen because there is a small percentage of women who will then go on to have vulvar cancer. Oh, I didn't know that. Let's say you, a woman has pain because of lichen or persistent itching or something like that, and you treat the lichen by whatever means, using steroids, using a vaginal laser, which we can talk more about, using PRP, you might treat their symptomatology, but they still need pretty close monitoring because you know a certain percentage of those women will have cancerous transformation, wow. which is not really something that's recognized a lot in the medical community and can often be overlooked. Yeah, I've never heard of that. And I stay pretty 
close to the research. So that's really, really good for me to know. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, if you talk to someone like Andrew Goldstein, who is a gynecologist by training, works on the East Coast, does a lot of vulvar dermatology and has a lot of experience with lichen disorders, he is adamant that women be treated with high-dosed topical steroids, something like clobetazole, indefinitely. In his mind, you can't just treat them until their lichen, quote-unquote, goes away because that chronic inflammatory state is what is thought to put them at risk for having cancer. So going back to your original question, yes, there are some people that are treating lichen with regenerative therapies like PRP, but that's, a, I think, sort of a unique category that requires a little bit more thought and definitely more monitoring post-treatment. So let's talk about ED. Mm -hmm. Someone might start with lifestyle changes, then do a PDE5, then they might try an injection or a suppository. At what point in the tree of considerations would you consider something like PRP? There's no clear sort of algorithm, right, when you're talking about these sort of regenerative therapies, because they are, to a large extent, still considered experimental, meaning that there's not large randomized controlled data showing that this is the way you should do it, this is where it fits in the algorithm of treatments, and this is the expected benefit. Do you wait for people to fail other treatments before you would recommend or consider or not necessarily? It's sort of case dependent. So because I have looked at the data that are available on PRP specifically, I mean, there's not a ton of studies, but the smaller studies that have been done, there have never been any reported adverse effects beyond like bruising, which, you know, if you're injecting the penis with anything, I mean, even saline, there's a risk of having a bruise. Right. I wouldn't consider that an adverse effect. I would consider that an expected outcome when you're putting a needle in your penis. <laughs> so there are things that, you know, you can do to prevent that, but that certainly shouldn't deter patients from seeking treatments like this. So because it's a really seemingly safe treatment that has no reported adverse effects, I talk to patients about it pretty early on as an option. You know, I'm not trying to sell anybody snake oil here. I'm very, very transparent with them and upfront and say that there are very limited data showing efficacy. And in medicine, we don't like to make large decisions based off of limited data like that. But I talk to them about the safety of it. And it depends on the patient. I mean, some patients don't mind taking a pill. And they're like, the pill works great. I'm happy with that. Mm -hmm. Other men take the pill for a while, then they fail it. And they're not, despite what you might think, super excited about doing injections to have sex. Or it works, but the side effects are intolerable. Correct. Other people are even further down that road and maybe are failing injections. And now we're thinking about surgery, something with like a penile implant. Right. And it just really depends on the man. Would you try... PRP before you would consider an implant? Absolutely. I have a patient who I just did last week who is a great penile implant candidate. He has venous leak. He is not responding to pills. He's not responding to injections. I think that penile implant is the best option for him. However, he said, is there anything else I can do? And I said, the only other thing that we are doing in this office for the treatment of erectile dysfunction is PRP. And I said, but I'm going to be totally honest with you. The people that we expect to do the best with this treatment are not people with venous leak. Right. However, if you understand that and that I can't make any promises as to what your response is going to be, 
and you want to try this, I think it's reasonable because once you have surgery, there's no kind of going back from that. And so I understand a man's desire to say, hey, is there anything else left? Right. Can you explain for my listeners who don't know what venous leak is? Yeah. So when men have vascular or what we call vasculogenic erectile dysfunction, it means that there's some blood flow issue that's contributing to their problem. So that comes in sort of two forms. You can have an arterial insufficiency where you're not delivering enough blood into your penis during an erection. Or you can have what's called a venous leak, which means that the veins, which normally are collapsed or compressed during an erection and don't allow blood to escape the penis, are somehow dysfunctional and are kept open to a certain degree during an erection. And what that means is that you have blood constantly leaking out of the penis during arousal. And the analogy I give patients is like, it's sort of like if your penis is a tire and you are filling that tire with air, you may not necessarily have a problem with the flow of air into the tire, but if someone has punched holes into the tire, then air will constantly leak out. And it doesn't matter how high the pressure you turn up on that air, (laughs) you're never going to be able to fully fill your tire. I'm laughing because I use the same analogy. You can get it in, but you can't keep it in. Correct. Or you can't get it in at all. Yeah. So I think that's helpful. I've had plenty of men who've said like, oh, I don't have ED because I can get hard. Exactly. And they don't they don't appreciate the nuances. There's getting the blood in, but then there's keeping the blood in. Right. And two different processes altogether. Exactly. Let's talk about lasers. What are you doing with lasers? So the lasers are primarily for the female side. So there are vaginal CO2 lasers and there are other modalities too. People are using radio frequency to affect similar changes. But essentially the CO2 lasers use laser technology to sort of regenerate vulval vaginal tissue. Mm -hmm. So as with the PRP, these are not FDA approved strategies. However, the laser is FDA cleared, meaning that they've deemed it relatively safe. Now there was a recent sort of pushback by that. And there is some concern that certain people are having adverse outcomes and they may be underreporting them. But in general, CO2 lasers are, again, also used in other areas of medicine, primarily dermatology, for the same purposes. So they shoot a laser on your face to <laughs> encourage production of collagen and turnover of the skin layers. And the same is true for the lasers that we use on vaginal tissue. And so would this be something like the Mona Lisa touch? Correct. Yeah. There's now, it seems like a million different lasers, but yes, that was one of the first to market. One of the originals. Yeah. And do you have a laser at your office? We don't have it actually in the office. It's housed at a local surgery center. Okay. But you can offer the treatment to women? Yes. And, you know, again... With these sorts of regenerative therapies, because they're out-of-pocket costs for patients, there are a lot of people sort of marketing them and using them in what I would consider sort of borderline, frankly, unethical ways. Mm -hmm. A lot of the pushback from the FDA recently about the lasers had to do with promises of vaginal rejuvenation. Right. And that is not a phrase that we like to use in sexual medicine. (laughs) In fact, we sort of cringe at the idea because this is not about 
rejuvenation. It's about restoration of function. Right. I love it. And that sounds like semantics, but it's a really important distinction. Absolutely. Because there are dermatologists, there are plastic surgeons, there are even primary doctors out there who are saying, oh, you know, you've had two kids, you know, wouldn't you like your vagina to be nice and tight, you know, like you were 20 years old again. And it's really not about that. This is not a cosmetic thing for the patients that I treat. This is a, I can't have sex anymore because it is so painful. Mm. I don't lubricate well because I've started menopause. I have mild incontinence when I cough or sneeze. These are all things that can be improved with, again, a relatively safe treatment And it's really just about restoring that function that once was. It's not about making things look prettier or feel nicer. Mm -hmm. So that's where I sort of put myself in this space. I'm not in the job of... Re-virginizing women. Correct. (laughs) Or reattaching hymens. Right. The so-called husband stitch. You're not doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Can you speak, Joshua, to the impact that your work has on people's lives, their well-being, and how meaningful it is for you to be able to address these things when people feel like there's no hope? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the only reason that I do this, to be honest, because there, as you know, we deal with a lot working in the sexual health space. Yes, we do. Whether that be personalities, both from <laughs> patients and you know other people in this field, and just neuroses of people that have been dealing with some sort of sexual dysfunction. Or trauma. Right, yeah, or previous trauma. Or OCD or depression, you name it. (laughs) That's where I come in, right? Exactly. But you know, I see that too. And sometimes I joke with my patients, I'm like, and I think to myself, I function as a therapist a lot of times. Absolutely. Because a lot of what I do, especially when I first meet with a patient, is just talk to them. Sure, we do the blood work and we do, you know, the physical exam, but out of the 45-minute visit that they are here to see me as a new patient, I mean, I would say 35 minutes of that is spent talking. Right. Because depending on how long they've been dealing with this, if it's been six weeks or six years, I mean, that's a whole story that you have to fully understand as to why they're in your chair today. I love that you're saying that. Yeah. You know, and if you are dealing with that six-year patient, they've probably seen a million other people. And you kind of need to understand what didn't get done, what has been tried, and didn't work. And the impact of just relax, have a glass of wine, mm-hmm. you're uptight. Yeah. Or this is all in your head. That's my favorite one. It's all in your head. Yeah. That's the psychological trauma that happens with just the patient's contact with the medical community who is grossly uneducated about these sorts of issues. I find that by the time people get to me, mm-hmm. the opportunity to talk in a safe environment about their sexuality and their sexual concern is so meaningful and so therapeutic that it can be life-changing. Just a one-hour conversation. Yeah, I agree. And I would say the same is true for me before, again, we've even done that sort of objective evaluation. I mean, just the talking, I've had patients say, no one's ever asked me that question. No one has ever sat with me for 30 minutes and asked me to tell them everything. And, And that's what establishes a trust, a bond with patients where they're saying, okay, I'm gonna trust that even though I've seen 10 other people that you may be able to do something different for me. And we may have a different outcome. That's right. They get very cynical. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're like, 11 doctors have failed me. Why do you think you're going to be the one that can help me? Right, yeah. And I think it starts by just, like you said, listening, hearing them out, and building that trust. 
So going back to your original question, I think we have all of that to deal with. Sometimes it can be frustrating because you have victories and you have disappointments in trying to care for patients. And I think sometimes the people that are the loudest are the ones that are the most frustrated and maybe not quite where they want to be. But when you get those patients that come back to you and they're like, you saved my marriage yeah. or I was in a really dark place when I saw you, you know, and people have told me that they were suicidal at points. I mean, it can get pretty dark. Absolutely. And when you get that patient who comes to you, I mean, I'm just thinking of a female patient specifically, wasn't able to have sex with her husband for two years. I mean, it got to the point where he became resentful. As she started to get better, he was then withholding sex from her as sort of like, a, I'll show you. Oh, it's a classic dynamic. Yeah. I see it every day in my office. I've even written about it. Yeah. But once they finally got through that, I think they went to a couples therapy and they finally had sex. She came to me and you could totally see it on her face. She walked into my office. I hadn't seen her in three months or something. And she walks in with a huge smile and she just says, you're never going to believe this. We're having sex two to three times a week. <laughs> she started almost crying. She said, I'm being completely honest when I'm saying you saved my marriage. Absolutely. We were in a really bad place. We were talking divorce. We were, you know, I mean, yes. so those are the sorts of things that I try to focus on because for a number of reasons, sometimes you can become easily frustrated working through all of the other messiness of, of this field. Yes. But that's what keeps me going and why I keep doing this is those patients that you really affect their whole life. And it, it seems like such a small fraction of their life, but it's so important to people's mental health, physical health, all of that stuff. Absolutely. When would someone be ready to come and see you? Should they go to their primary care doctor first or should they find a Joshua Gonzalez in their community? This is probably just my own bias view. I would say if you want to solve the problem quickly and you want real answers and an actual diagnosis, it's probably best that you seek out a specialist like myself. And I'm only saying that because many of the people that I see, and I'm sure this is the case with you as well, have seen a number of other providers before they see me. It's pretty rare. I mean, it changes a little bit. I think now patients feel more empowered with internet research and I get people finding me on Yelp all the time. And, and podcasts, like sex savvy. <laughs> yeah, podcasts, people finding articles that I've written or participated in or given an opinion on. And then they go to my website and they find me on their own. So that does happen. And I think it's more often in younger patients that I see where that is happening. And I think that's great. I've also had patients who said, you know, I've talked to my regular doctor about this. He just gave me a pill of Viagra. I'm like, okay, well, did it work? No. That's why I'm here. Right. Or I saw X, Y, and Z urologist and they don't know what's wrong with me. They told me it's in my head or you know something like that. And then you talk to them, well, what kind of workup did they do? Well, they just, they told me I'm too young to have erectile dysfunction. Right. So I want to try to minimize that as much as possible because like you said, with each one of those bad encounters comes a new anxiety that is probably just going to make them more cynical. And more symptomatic. Right, exactly. And worse than their problem. In an attempt to try to minimize that, I would say if you're having a problem sexually and it's not a one-off and it's becoming a recurrent problem or it's having a negative effect on your well-being or the health of your relationship, then find those answers. Find those specialists on your own. Don't wait to see if your primary doctor believes you and or is going to refer you to the appropriate person because they may send you to a urologist who has no business 
or any interest in treating a sexual problem just because that's the urologist they send all the urology issues to. I encourage, or I would encourage your listeners to seek out the specialists so that they don't waste their time and they can get to a diagnosis and a solution for that diagnosis as soon as possible. Well, I could talk to you for hours. I have so many more questions. We will have to do a part two. Yeah, I'm happy to. This was fun. It was great to connect with you again, Joshua Gonzalez, urologist and sexual medicine doctor here in Los Angeles. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And we have to do another sexy talk. It was so much fun. Even if we call it something different, but I would love to do it again. Yeah. I still get people asking for it all the time. When are you going to do another sexy talk? (laughs) So we'll definitely have to get that on the calendar. Okay, for sure. All right. Listen, have a great week and I will talk with you soon. Thanks again to Dr. Joshua Gonzalez for joining me on Sex Savvy. If you'd like to reach out to Dr. Gonzalez, you can contact him through his website, joshuagonzalezmd.com. If you'd like to find a certified sexual medicine provider in your area, you can contact the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. Their website is www.smsna.org. They do have a provider finder link in their website. You would just type in your zip code. For my international listeners, if you'd like to find a sexual medicine provider in your country, you can contact the International Society for Sexual Medicine at www.issm.info. They also have a provider finder on their website as well. I'm going to end today's episode with a wonderful question from one of my listeners named Anna. She wrote that her son came out as gay two years ago and that he is 22 years old. She said, so me, being the liberal and concerned mom that I am, I had immediate concerns about his first experiences and encounters with men. I would imagine in Los Angeles, it's much easier for the community to be a bit more open and available for seeking out all of that than it is here in this small town in the Midwest. Although I would say we're making some amazing strides with our third annual Pride event in August. She says, anyway, I've talked with many of our gay friends to see if they would adopt him as a way to make him feel comfortable in the culture, the do's and don'ts, etc. Our hairdresser has been amazing. He's helped my son find a style he likes, given him skincare and hair tips. And because my son is in business, we found ways for him to live his truth and feel genuine, but also be a bit conforming. And that sounds awful, even as I type it. But it's sort of what society expects. Anyway, my real confession is that I went to an adult store and bought him some varieties of lubes, condoms, dental dams, and a small anal device. I told him he may want to use it and think about how his colorectal health may change if he's a bottom. We just sat on the floor of his room, both red-faced, but getting through the talk together. He laughed, but he also thought I was being thoughtful and that this stuff wasn't anything he would have thought of on his own. I just know how I value my plumbing to work correctly, and I had major concerns about this for him. He's gay, but asexual. 
He has not had any romantic interactions with anyone and hadn't really started exploring masturbation until a couple of years ago. Can you speak to this? Am I a crazy, overly intrusive mom, or am I just overthinking the details? I mean, I buy condoms for my daughter, and we speak openly too, but I can't speak from any sort of experience as a hetero female to my gay son, so I wonder what are some good resources for him. I just want him to have safe, comfortable, and favorable experiences instead of scary, traumatic ones like some of us have had. Thanks again, and I'll be tuning in. So, Anna, thank you so much for submitting this question. First of all, I will say you are not crazy or intrusive or overbearing in any way, shape, or form. You are the epitome of a cool and progressive mom. Your son deserves sex ed, just like any other young adult or teen. He probably was not exposed to LGBTQQ friendly or positive sex ed in school. Very, very few school districts have comprehensive lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer, or questioning curriculum. In fact, when surveyed, only 4% of LGBTQ adults reported that they had any LGBTQQ education in school. So if these kids aren't getting it in school, mom, it's up to you. There is an organization called GLSEN. The acronym is G-L-S-E-N, but it's GLSEN, like G-L-I-S-T-E-N, as in gay listen. And they are an online organization that promote original research to inform evidence-based solutions for LGBTQ curriculum. They author developmentally appropriate resources for educators to use. They partner with decision makers to ensure that comprehensive and inclusive safe school policies are considered, passed, and implemented. They also empower students to affect change by supporting student-led efforts to impact their own schools and local communities in positive ways. They work to ensure that LGB students are able to learn and grow in a school environment free from bullying and harassment. They feel like LGBTQ youth need and deserve to learn in a setting that's inclusive of their experiences and also gives them the education necessary to stay safe and healthy. So Anna, you are a shining example and hopefully an inspiration to other moms and dads. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.